You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. I have a recurring daydream where I inexplicably discover an extra room behind the closet I'm recording in. It's my own personal office, and in my fantasies, it is glorious. There's a fine leather Regency armchair and ottoman for me to kick up on while I'm reading. There's a hundred-year-old pull-down map cabinet on the wall so I can stare purposelessly at the continental U.S. or Illinois circa 1908 and then do that thing where I let the map snap, roll up, and disappear the way I got in trouble for in elementary school. And center stage, there's the desk. An antique quarter-sawn oak draftsman's desk. Dark and woody and wonderful, with more than a dozen pull-out drawers for all my miscellaneous doodads and nonsense. In my dreams, it's perfect. And every last element can be found at Industrial Artifacts. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chock-blocked with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar, searching for that fabulous kitchen table, or, sigh, building out your non-existent home office space, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. Check out the link in the episode notes or go to industrialartifacts.net today. And remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT, one word, to get 15% off your first order. One day, pull-down map. One day. On his second voyage to the New World in pursuit of a fabled Northwest Passage, Martin Frobisher and his three-ship crew got tossed and ended up on a huge island, fifth largest in the world, now known as Baffin Island. The ice and mist made continued searching for the passage impossible. It was a bad deal for Frobisher. He'd managed to convince the Queen and several aristocrats to fund his adventure at great expense. If he were successful, he hoped to be named High Admiral of the Northwestern Seas and Governor of all lands he touched. But if he came back empty-handed, he'd be ruined. There was no way for Frobisher to find the passage, but on Baffin Island, he found something almost as good. Gold. He managed to bring 200 tons of it back in his ship's holds and presented it to Queen Elizabeth and her court. An appraiser and merchant, Michael Locke, marked the ore at more than five pounds sterling per ton. 
In today's terms, that meant the whole load was worth nearly 400,000 pounds, or half a million dollars. Not a bad haul, but Frobisher promised it was just the beginning, a sliver of the reserves available back in Canada. With that promise, Michael Locke put up the financing, and the Crown gave Frobisher 15 ships for his next trip, with the promise that he would set up a permanent mining colony on Baffin Island. The permanent part quickly proved difficult to manage. Food was scarce, conditions were harsh, and infighting among the settlers and crew quickly became unmanageable. Frobisher's third expedition left England on June 3rd of 1578, reached the island on July 2nd, and gave up and shoved off back for home on August 30th. The colony was a failure, but with his 15 ships, Frobisher was able to bring along with him 1,350 tons of ore. That should have been worth three and a half million dollars or so. Except when the fleet, minus one ship that wrecked on the way back, made ground in October, the ore proved stubborn. Michael Locke had built a special smelting plant in Dartford to separate the gold from the ore, but it wasn't working. For five years, he worked at extracting the gold with no success. Eventually, the whole enterprise was scrapped. Locke, one of the richest men from one of the richest families in England, was ruined. His company bankrupted, and he was sent to debtor's prison. And Martin Frobisher's career as an explorer and adventurer was over, along with his hope of ever finding the Northwest Passage. Why had they been unable to extract the gold from the ore? Because there was no gold in the ore. Only pyrite, a.k.a. fool's gold. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This is our, and I really can't believe this, 50th episode, which means, in anniversary terms, that we have to call this one The Golden Episode. Allow me a moment's victory lap. 50 episodes! Approximately 22 hours. That's nothing to sneeze at. I could spend this whole episode talking about fool's gold, or medicinal gold, or ill-fated gold building and or weaponry projects, but for this anniversary, only one story will do. The story of El Dorado, the lost city of gold. From 1530 or so on to... Today, countless people have held hope that it was out there, somewhere. Maybe in Peru, maybe in Colombia, possibly in dense jungle, or at the bottom of a lake bed. And at least a thousand of those people died trying to find it. There is no lost city of gold, which should come as no surprise. But what might is when we knew that. We didn't figure out that El Dorado was a myth in this century, or the last one, or the one before that, or the one before that. No. In my opinion, the most fascinating thing about El Dorado is that everyone who has ever believed in it or searched for it has had the resources available to debunk it. The truth behind the myth was never lost, just purposefully ignored. So, obviously, I'll be saving it to the end. Instead, we'll awkwardly start in 1534, with the most disastrous expedition for El Dorado. Or maybe the second most disastrous. It's a horse race, let me tell you. We start with Gonzalo Pizarro, the third-born illegitimate son of Captain Gonzalo Pizarro y Rodriguez de Aguilar. 
Gonzalo's older brother, Francisco, was the big success of the family. He basically discovered the Inca Empire and immediately began ransacking it. From town to town, city to city, his small band of conquistadors pillaged, marauded, and pilfered, slowly making their way towards the Inca king, Atahualpa. When the two finally met at Cajamarca, modern-day Peru, Francisco had only a few hundred men in contrast to the 80,000-man army. They had their first face-to-face meeting with drinks and a show of decolletage from Bizarro's horsemen. Everything was friendly and nice. So the next day, Francisco ambushed the king, killing 7,000 Incas and taking him hostage. The Incan people agreed to pay a tremendous ransom for their sovereign. He was kept in a room about 20 by 15 feet, and he promised his subjects would fill it with gold and treasure. Eight months later, they did. And Francisco, being a man of his word, set Atahualpa free. Nah, just kidding. He strangled him to death. Then the invading Spanish began their march on the Inca capital of Cusco, which had been discovered by the youngest Pizarro brother, Hernando. They beat back the native peoples there, taking supplies and riches and establishing Cusco as a Spanish city. For our purposes, let's call that the end of the Inca Empire. It wasn't actually that simple, either logistically or morally. There were further Inca retreats and decades of guerrilla tactics. And while the Spanish were unquestionably shitty, we should note that the Inca were pretty shitty too. They were colonizing, killing, and abusing the peoples of South America before Spain ever set foot there, and plenty of folks from all around were happy to see them gone, until it became clear that the alternative was, well, not any better. But what's important to the story of El Dorado, for now at least, is that Gonzalo's brothers were really super duper successful, and he was insecure about that. In 1541, Francisco gave Gonzalo the job of governor of Quito, which was nice of him, I guess, but let's level. That's kind of a smirking Dom move too, right? He's letting you play governor? Ouch, Gonzalo. Ouch. But in Quito, Gonzalo heard rumors about the legendary El Dorado, which was said to be just a ways east across the Andes Mountains and through a wee bit of jungle so impenetrably thick it was known as the Devil's Eyebrow. It was practically a day trip. Recognizing an opportunity for fame, fortune, and fraternal one-upsmanship, he put together a team of 200-plus Spaniards and 4,000-plus Native Americans to join him on the journey to find the City of Gold. The expedition was a boondoggle from word one. The Native Americans were dressed mostly in light furs, which led many of them to freeze to death in the mountains. But the Spaniards were decked out in metal armor, which led them to die of heat stroke, exhaustion, and mosquito-borne disease in the jungle. And all of them began to die of starvation. They brought along teams of hunting dogs, all of which they had eaten by the time Francisco de Oriana caught up with them. Francisco de Oriana was Gonzalo's second in command. When Gonzalo set out, Oriana was ordered to find extra recruits and horses. His team of 23 on horseback found Gonzalo's a month later in the Valley of Zumaco. By then, 3,000 of the natives and 140 of the Spanish had died. Eventually, Gonzalo decided that he would bravely turn back for Quito, while Francisco's party could do the easy work of continuing the search for El Dorado. Given the choice, which would you want to go with? Don't worry, there's no right answer. All but 50 of the 1,100 or so men turned around with Gonzalo. All but 80 of them died on the return trip to Quito of hunger, disease, heat, and cold. 
Francisco's group, on the other hand, trekked through jungle brush until they reached a large river. There, they built a boat and decided to ford it to the ocean. It seemed like the fastest route. How long could a mysterious South American river be, after all? It took two months of river riding to finally find the sea. Two months of starvation so desperate that they resorted to eating their belts and shoe leathers. Two months of attacks from Inca guerrillas and native tribes, including the Piria Tapuya, who Oriana engaged in battle along the riverbank, and whose warriors included both men and women. Oriana gave them a name based off of a mythical tribe of warrior women, whom Herodotus had written about in his histories, and gave the same name to the river, the Amazon. The second longest river in the world, and the largest by volume. On August 26, 1542, the famished, sun-baked, malaria-ridden remnants of Francisco de Oriana's voyage reached the Atlantic. And after a week of separation lost in the doldrums, they made landfall at Cubagua in present-day Venezuela. Those who had managed to survive wanted nothing to do with the Amazon ever again. Except for Francisco de Oriana. He became obsessed by two ideas. The first was that he should be in charge of all that new stuff he'd found as he wended his way downriver. The second obsessive idea was, as you might have guessed, El Dorado. He returned to Spain and appealed to King Charles I to be made governor of what he called Nueva Andalusia. Charles agreed and granted him men, boats, horses, and materials to return to the New World, settle the Amazon basin, and find the lost city. If the first expedition had gotten off to a shaky start, the second's was an earthquake. Francisco set off in May of 1545 for the Canary Islands, where he was to resupply before the next leg of the crossing. He got stuck there for three months without means. When he finally got underway again, he got stuck at Capu Verde, off the west coast of Africa, where he and his crew languished for another two months. One of his ships sank, a hundred of his men died of fever, and another fifty jumped ship. On the final trip from Capo Verde to South America, another ship wrecked, taking nearly 80 hands and most of the party's horses along with it. It took until December, more than seven months, for them to finally reach the Amazon. But Francisco still wasn't ready to set out on the business end of his mission. In addition to all the horses and people, the two sunk ships also held his river boats. So when they made land, they had to build a new one. During that process, nearly 60 more of his men died and their last ship crashed against the shore. For those keeping tally, that is more than 200 dead, 50 abandoned, and all horses and ships lost before setting out for El Dorado. Maybe, just maybe, it was time to throw in the towel. But Francisco had a real bad case of the sunk cost fallacies. He couldn't turn around now. He and his small boat crew cruised upriver, seeking out the main branch. They didn't find it, but on the bright side, they did find a group of hostile natives who attacked and killed 17 more of Francisco's men with poisoned arrows. His crew, almost entirely dead, his boat in shambles, his path forward obscured, Francisco de Oriana is reported to have simply given up. He sat on the water's edge and slowly sank into starvation, disease, and defeat. By the end of November 1546, he was dead. Between Oriana's first voyage and his last, there were many others. 
But after his desperate, doomed death, the surge appears to have mostly gone cold. In a little over a decade, hundreds had died in search of the lost city of gold, and nobody had gotten a wink of it. Yet, the most calamitous search was still ahead. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by Full Stack Academy. In 2003, 8,500 patients suddenly dropped dead at St. Mary's Mercy Medical Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The cause? A coding error. Luckily, the fatalities only existed in the Mercy Medical Computer Network, so everybody was physically unharmed. But the network sent alerts of all these deaths to the Social Security office, meaning that the cyber-afflicted had to brave a Kafkaesque gauntlet of unresponsive bureaucracy in order to prove that they were, in fact, alive. This never would have happened if the folks running Mercy's system had gone to Full Stack Academy. Fullstack is one of the longest-running coding boot camps in the country, with alumni going on to work for Google, Jellyvision, and J.P. Morgan. They teach cutting-edge software engineering skills with hands-on training right here in Chicago, at far less than the cost of going back to school. And Fullstack is making it even more affordable by giving the constant listeners an additional $500 off tuition for any cohorts through April 2020. Head to fullstackacademy.com constant and get $500 off. Again, that's fullstackacademy.com slash constant for $500 off your Full Stack Academy tuition. Full Stack Academy Chicago. Get coding, get hired. And by BetterHelp. If you're struggling with any of life's many challenges, BetterHelp is available anytime, anywhere to give you a hand. They'll connect you with a professional counselor in a safe, private, online environment where you can get help on your own time, at your own pace, and through whatever means work best for you. Text, chat, phone, or video. BetterHelp has counselors that focus on any number of common issues, including depression, anxiety, grief, self-esteem, sleep problems, and relationship troubles. Your sessions are secure, convenient, professional, and best of all, affordable. Constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant.
12 years after Oriana's death in 1558, the interest in El Dorado suddenly reignited. Sources differ on why. The most obvious explanation is that the conquistadors of Peru encountered a tribe of migrating Brazil Indians who told them that they could find an obscenely rich kingdom downriver on the Maranon. There's some good reason to doubt that, but it'll have to wait. The other explanation, which to me at least seems more like it, is that there were a whole bunch of unruly, drunken, angry, bored Spaniards hanging around Lima and that the viceroy of Peru, Andres Hurtado de Mendoza, dreamed up an El Dorado expedition as a kind of snipe hunt to get the increasingly ungovernable scallywags out of his hair for a while. Mendoza put in charge of this bootless errand Pedro de Arzúa, one of the most accomplished conquistadors under his charge. Pedro had founded the city of Pamplona, Colombia, nine years earlier at 24 years of age. Now he was 35, devastatingly handsome, whip-smart, and engaged to the beautiful Inez de Atienza. If you were going to put your lives in the hands of a 16th century Spanish conquistador, you could do worse than to make those hands the soft yet powerful mitts of Pedro de Orsua. The palms of his subordinates, on the other hand, were less baby-skinned, to put it mildly. In 1560, Ursua left Lima with 300 Spanish roughnecks, 500 Peruvian native slaves, and his fiance under his command. Questionable? A year later, more than half of them were dead. But unlike the other expeditions, the explorers of 1560 weren't principally killed off by disease, hunger, exposure, or exhaustion. Most of the casualties, including Ursua, were murdered. Back in our episode on Columbus, Discovered, we talked a bit about Leyenda Negra, the Spanish black legend. The black legend is a problem for those studying the discovery, conquering, and colonization of the New World, because so many of the primary and secondary documents describing the conquest show a deep racism and bias against the Spanish. But luckily for us, the story of Ursua's ill-fated trip down the Amazon was written down for us by 10 separate survivors of it, as well as through court testimonies. All those tellings focus primarily on three figures. Ursua himself, Fernando de Guzman, a nobleman from Seville, and especially Lope de Aguirre, who preferred to be called the Wrath of God, but tended to be known as El Loco. Nothing alarming there. The trip into the Amazon started off about as poorly as you've at this point been primed to expect. Boats sunk, supplies dwindled, natives attacked. Ursua's men blamed him for the rough going and started to doubt the existence of El Dorado altogether. Yes, you're on to it, boys. Ursua manages to put down the first mutiny against him. He executes four people and has one Spanish nobleman put in chains to row with the slaves. A big no-no. Ursua seems to have believed that this harsh punishment would dissuade the party from rising up again. He was extraordinarily wrong. Ursua's troops only seethed and conspired against him more. Particularly, it seems they loathed his relationship with Inez, with whom he spent most of his time neglecting his command. On New Year's Day, 1561, Lope de Aguirre, El Loco, led a contingent of soldiers in the assassination of Pedro de Ursua. They then appointed Fernando de Guzman to lead them, but not as captain or general or anything so common. First, they named Guzman governor and... Not long after that, he's promoted again, 
with Aguirre naming him Prince of Chile and Peru. The expedition had entirely dropped the matter of El Dorado. Now they were instead in open rebellion against Spain. But Guzman's brief rule is continually complicated by Aguirre and his propensity towards murdering damn near everybody. He kills several of Guzman's top men, he kills the beautiful Inez, and finally, he kills Guzman and names himself the new new prince of Peru. In a truly unhinged letter to King Philip of Spain, he explains himself. They appointed me their field commander, and because I did not consent to their insults and evil deeds, they tried to kill me, and I killed the new king, the captain of his guard, the lieutenant general, his major domo, his chaplain, a woman in league against me, a knight of Rhodes, an admiral, two ensigns, and six other of his allies. It was my intention to carry this war through and die in it, for the cruelties your ministers practiced on us, and I again appointed captains and a sergeant major. They tried to kill me too, and I hung them all. <laughs> it seems like a good leader. It's a wise choice. Fucking hit your star to that wagon. Uh, anyway. El Loco commands the remaining 186 men around him to swear fealty, and they begin a reign of reasonless terror across Peru. In that same letter to Philip, Lope lobs several pretty astute political complaints at the monarch, but he also goes on several bizarre diatribes about whether and why kings such as Philip should go to hell. And more than anything, he makes clear that he intends on murdering and marauding his way through the jungles, down the coasts, and across the ocean, until the new country, of which he is king, is free of Spanish influence. And so he did. But maybe announcing that intention, in writing, to the ruler of the most advanced naval power of the era was a little short-sighted. King Philip raises the alarm, and also an army, to do away with Aguirre. The wrath of God eventually manages to seize the island of Margarita in 1561, but that only manages to make his whereabouts obvious. The army descended upon him, he headed for the mainland, murdered several of his followers as well as his daughter, yes, you heard that right, and was captured, shot, beheaded, and cut into pieces. His head and limbs were sent around the corners of the Spanish Empire as a warning. The parts not fit for display were fed to the dogs. And that about rings the bell on the Spanish efforts to find El Dorado. In that same letter to King Philip, which Simón de Bolivar called the first declaration of American independence, Aguirre also made a warning. I advise you, king and lord, not to attempt nor allow a fleet to be sent to this ill-fated river, because in Christian faith I swear, king and lord, that if a hundred thousand men come, none will escape, because the stories are false, and in this river there is nothing but despair, especially for those newly arrived from Spain. Pretty good advice. But while the Spanish may have been done with El Dorado for the time being, the English were just getting started. In 1584, Sir Walter Raleigh captured Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, the governor of Patagonia, who let spill to him the secret of the Golden City, probably in an effort to free himself. Raleigh appears to have put this juicy info in his back pocket in case he needed it later. And boy, would he ever need it later. 
Raleigh was England's greatest New World explorer. He's almost single-handedly responsible for blazing the trail for English settlement in North America, and therefore the eventual United States. He was held in high regard by Queen Elizabeth, who knighted him in 1885, a year after he had captured Gamboa. But in 1591, Raleigh got himself into hot water when he decided to secretly marry Elizabeth Throckmorton, the Queen's lady-in-waiting. Walter and Elizabeth were arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. They were eventually released, but Raleigh still needed a way to get back in the royal good graces. Something like, say, discovering a fantastic secret golden city, perhaps? Raleigh crossed the Atlantic, sacked Spanish Trinidad, captured the governor, Antonio de Berrio, and pressed him for information on El Dorado. Barrio gave up what he knew, but warned Raleigh not to try for the lost city. The journey was beyond perilous, and the goal a myth. Yeah, okay, whatever, said Raleigh, and set off for El Dorado. Okay, okay. By now, you probably have a pretty good idea of what Raleigh and his crew faced. Heat, disease, food shortages, impassable jungle brush, hostile native populations... But on top of those baseline threats, Raleigh had two more things to worry about. The Spanish, upset about that whole sieging Trinidad thing, sent an army after him. It was when Raleigh's crew finally managed to get through the thickest jungle and out into the grassland plains of Los Llanos that they figured out the other new problem. Raleigh's men were so relieved to finally be out of the wilderness that they jumped right into the Orinoco River, gleeful to be free of danger. They only realized that the river was stocked to bursting with crocodiles after the first man was eaten alive in full view of the whole party. But Raleigh did have one significant advantage. He wasn't Spanish. As his crew worked its way further and further into the interior, the full benefits of that simple fact became clear. Most of the indigenous people the expedition met were happy to befriend them as soon as they learned that they were English and that the English hated the Spaniards. We hate the Spaniards too, said the people, and gave Raleigh much-needed food, water, shelter, and support. Still, Raleigh was unable to locate El Dorado, for some reason, and with the rainy season upon him, he figured enough was enough and turned back for the Trinidad port of Cumana, which he decided to burn to the ground for shits and giggles before finally weighing anchor for jolly old England. His journey failed to propel him back into high society. He hadn't found the city, or the gold, or much of value at all. So, he wrote a book, in which he brazenly exaggerated his travels and invented tales of riches to save his ass and cement the myth of El Dorado deeper into the European consciousness. Raleigh's writings managed to swing him back into decent favor, but eight years later, he was back in the hot seat for having conspired to depose King James. He was tried, convicted, and spent the next 13 years back in his old prison cell in the Tower of London. He was finally pardoned and released in 1617, in part because of his promises to return to the New World and deliver El Dorado to England. By the time of this second odyssey, two critical factors had changed. Raleigh was old and too sick to go along with the scouting crew, instead staying behind on Trinidad, leaving the real work up to his companion Lawrence Kearns and his son Watt. The other big shift was that England and Spain had brokered a peace, and Raleigh was forbidden from scuffling with his old enemies. Unfortunately, battle between Kern's crew and the Spanish outpost of St. Thomas broke out anyway, and although the English won the battle, it came at a heavy price. Raleigh's son Watt was killed in the attack, 
and Kearns, ashamed at having overseen that death, committed suicide. The second voyage was over practically before it began, and when Walter Raleigh returned to England, not only did he face the shame of another failed adventure, but the wrath of the Spanish government for the attack on its men. To keep the peace, King James ordered his execution. On October 29th, 1618, he was beheaded by axe. The head was then embalmed and given to his widow, who was said to have carried it around in a velvet bag for the rest of her life. Ah, the good old days, when men were heads and women loved them. After Antonio de Barrio, the Spanish governor of Trinidad who warned Raleigh away from El Dorado, was freed, he decided to break with his own advice and made his own attempt for the Golden City. But the tribes with whom Raleigh had allied ambushed and murdered nearly every last man. There is no end to these stories. Dozens, if not hundreds of charters have made way for El Dorado. And not only have they all failed, but most of them have failed spectacularly. It took until Alexander von Humboldt's survey in 1804 to finally present a convincing case that El Dorado didn't exist. Yet even his work did little to slow the obsession. There have been several journeys into the Amazon in search of gold in just the last 20 years, after all. Humboldt reached his conclusion through hard work, surveying, geology, geography, natural sciences. That was all fine and good, but as I mentioned way back towards the start, none of it was necessary. Because everybody, from Barrio to Raleigh to Ursua to the mad wrath of God, had all the evidence available to them to know there was no El Dorado. The first step on this ladder to madness goes back at least to Cortez conquering the Aztecs. The Aztecs and many of the other indigenous people that the Spanish ran across in the 1520s had gold, and it seemed like they had lots of it. The Inca, who the elder Pizarro defeated, did too. Gold has a nearly universal value to cultures all around the world, from ancient Egypt to China to India to Europe to, yes, Central and South America. But the meaning of that value isn't homogenous. To the Spanish and the English, gold was a tradable commodity. It was coinage, it was cash, it was riches. So when the conquistadors saw mid-echelon priests or village leaders bedecked in finely crafted gold, it was natural to assume that some greater store of treasure existed out there with the higher-ups. But most of the people of Central and South America didn't treat gold as an object of wealth. It wasn't currency to the Inca or the Aztecs. It was instead religious or spiritual or demonstrative of class and status. The most skillful gold workers of the New World were the Muisca of present-day Colombia. The gold crafted by the Muisca was probably the most amazing in the world, surely far more impressive than what Europeans were used to. They crafted astonishing figures of nearly everything you could think of. Golden fields of grass, golden dogs, golden trees, golden rafts. And all this gold was used almost exclusively for religious and political matters, which were basically one and the same. The story that gets back to the Spanish comes from Juan Rodriguez Freyal. Freyal describes the coronation ceremony of the Musca ruler. The accuracy of his account was long up for debate, but archaeological evidence collected in the last century or so seems to back him up. According to Freyal, 
When a new ruler was chosen, he was sent to a cave to be purified from human contact for a while. Then he made his way to a circular lake, which Frail calls Guadavita, which is probably the lake we now call Guadavita in Colombia, where he is covered from head to toe in gold dust and sent out to the middle of the water on a raft. When the dazzling king raised his flag, the Musca people gathered around the lake, tossed their golden votive offerings into the water as tribute to their god, and the new lord and king was officially named. Freyo calls this king the Gilded One, or El Dorado. El Dorado wasn't even meant to be a place at all. It was a dude. But the story begins to shift in accordance with the details most ear-perking for the conquistadors who heard it. First off, there was a lake that people threw tons and tons of gold into and then left there. That was worth noting. The story of the Gilded King also pretty quickly transforms. Instead of him being covered in gold once as part of a special ceremony, people begin describing him as so rich that he coats himself in gold every day and, most importantly, washes it away at night because there's so much gold about that to simply wear some sort of crown or vestments of the stuff would be common and below his station. What we can't say with precision is how El Dorado goes from being a person to a city. What we do know is that there was no shortage of legendary cities and islands and countries swirling around the imaginations of early transatlantic explorers. Even Martin Frobisher, up in the Canadian wilderness with his fool's gold, initially believed he'd discovered the mysterious island of Bus. The city part of the City of Gold could have been any number of places, including a supposed land of cinnamon, which the South Americans also told the Spanish about. The legend of El Dorado was compounded many times over by European explorers and writers, but maybe most of all by the Native Americans, who they constantly oppressed. Remember when I said that some migrating Brazil Indians may have been responsible for the resurgence of interest in El Dorado? Yeah, well, maybe. But the records of Spanish explorers in the Indies and Amazon regions are pocked with what appear to be attempts by natives to get them to go away. Just as the Spanish didn't grasp that the peoples they encountered didn't see gold as money, those people didn't get that the Spanish did see it that way. And time after time, conquistadors harassed, nagged, tortured, and even killed those that they ran across in an attempt to get them to give up the secret of the Golden City. And so, those on the receiving end of this abuse were all too happy to say, yeah, yeah, El Dorado, whatever you say, it's, I don't know, say, east of here a ways. If you leave right now and don't come back, you'll definitely find it. El Dorado was the Warner Brothers cartoon, He Went that Away" of the Age of Discovery. Unlike many myths and legends, we can track the genesis of the lost city of gold back pretty much to its roots and follow most of its critical mutations. The records of the tale never had to be rediscovered because they were never lost, only ignored out of greed and avarice. And since those don't seem likely to leave us anytime soon, the chances are that ambitious idiots will continue to lose themselves and their lives in pursuit of El Dorado for a long time to come. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, Kevin McLeod, and Anime is Trash. As of today, we are halfway towards our first Patreon goal. That means 
halfway to the point where I can start working on a spin-off show that I've so far been too cautious to mention on air. But it's episode 50, so when better to dream big? It's also the perfect time to help sponsor the show. Go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up. It'll help give me the time and resources to make this a better show, and ultimately the chance to tell a different type of story. Not the stuff we got wrong in the past, but the stuff we're getting wrong right now. In case you didn't hear, The Constant is now a member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to wonderful shows like Soonish, Iconography, and Culture Hustlers. Go to hubspokeaudio.org to check out the full catalog, but for my first formal recommendation, I want to lead y'all to Behold the Monkey, an episode of The Lonely Palette about an amateur attempt at restoring a painting of Jesus that launched global horror, laughter, and memes, memes, memes up the yin-yang. It's been called one of the best podcast episodes of the year by IndieWire, and I would be hard-pressed to disagree. So check it out. Search your podcast app for The Lonely Palette, or just follow the link I'll put in the show notes. Until next time, from the home of the Golden Lady, a 165-foot-tall, but now only 25-foot-tall statue by Daniel Chester French, which we once hoped would show up the Statue of Liberty, Chicago, Illinois. This has been The Constant. King Philip raises the alarm, and also an army, to do away with a Aguirre. God damn it. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's the fucking Portuguese. Pronounce names.com. Aguirre. Yes, of course. <laughs> As we well know, it is Aguirre. Fucking shit. Let's get this guy dead so I never have to talk about him again. <laughs>